Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, 1 through 11 will be our text. And last week, we examined what some had dubbed a travel log, or basically the travel record of uh, the author of the letter as the usual practice, and it's usually found at the end of the letter. However, right in the middle of Philippians, Paul inserted where Timothy and Epaphroditus would be going uh, in the recent uh, coming or the coming days. Now, we paired our last two messages together thematically based on the fact that Paul was dealing with his own personal time of departure. He thought, you know, it's possible. I got to stand before Caesar. He's going to call me guilty or not guilty. And if I'm not guilty, I'll see you again. If I am guilty, I'll see the Lord. And he was saying, you know, seeing the Lord is far better, but it's probably needful for me to stay here. And the reality is, is that as we titled our time two weeks ago, we considered that as his personal departure was at hand, our corporate departure is at hand as well. So we called our message, Time to Go Home. Yeah. And you know, the Lord could come today. Yeah. I, I love what Dr. Thomas Ice has said. He said, what problem do you have that the rapture wouldn't solve? Yeah. I mean, come on, we would be forever with the Lord. And our second message was that, since it's time to go home, we need to prepare for departure. And in preparation for the days in which we live, we based at least in part our time together on what Paul said the last days were going to be like in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5 is where he gives a list. But basically it's introduced in verse 1 that in the last days, what kind of times will come? Perilous times will come. Are they on us? Absolutely. And we mentioned last week that as it pertains to the world, there's nothing good that's going to be going on in the last days. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be a time where the world is perilous, loveless, truthless, hopeless, lawless, and violent as well. And we noted three things that we should practice as we await the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And the first was this. Listen, the best way to face a downturn is to keep our hopes up. Keep focused on the Lord. Don't start looking around at everything negative and all the uh, ugly things that are happening in our world. There's always been ugly things going on in this world. And we've always been told, keep your eyes on Jesus. So listen, we're in a major downturn morally and spiritually in the world. So let's keep looking up. Amen. And we also made mention that we cannot allow difficulties to overshadow God's mercies. God's mercies are new every morning and uh, tough things are going on in our world today, but yet God is merciful. And if we look for his mercy, we're going to find it. And the last days we found are a battleground, not a campground. We're not just sitting here contemplating our navel, waiting for the Lord to come back, doing nothing, hoping that today's the day. I hope every day that today's the day. I always hope it on the last day of the month because the mortgage payments due the next day. I always hope that, but I'm not just going to sit around and say, well, maybe you'll come today. And well, you didn't come this morning. Maybe you'll come this afternoon. We need to be about the father's business. Amen. Now, we have to remember that Paul was writing from the perspective of four years of nonstop trials and tribulations and imprisonments. And he came to the conclusion, which I hope and think it should be convicting to us all, after Paul went through everything he went through, his conclusion was, man, God's been merciful to me. Wow, has his mercy been beneficial to me. And he could write and say of his own life, I fought the good fight of faith and I have finished the race. Let's finish well, church. Let's finish strong. Now, I was, uh, and for some reason, Philippians, there's all kinds of stuff coming in from every direction from the commentators, and I was a bit perplexed at what some of the commentators offered about our text because they said, you know, Paul used the word finally to open chapter 3, and then he used it again in chapter 4, verse 8. So their conclusion was that between these two finalies, he had this kind of uh, parentheses that he wrote somewhere else that somebody else wrote that some scribe actually inserted into the text because Paul said, finally, twice. And, and I don't know that I've ever met a pastor who doesn't say finally multiple times in any <laughs> given message. Now, my opinion, just like the other commentators, or commentators rather, uh, they are thinking this is an insertion for somewhere else. What I think is actually happening in our text is evidenced in 2 Timothy. 
I think Paul was becoming more and more aware that things may not go favorably for him when he stands before Nero the madman. And yet he continued to say, I know I will be delivered. And he was. Right out of his body into the presence of the Lord. He says, I trust I will come to you shortly. As we discussed last week, this is, is to be our attitude all the time, no matter what's going on. That God is going to do wonderful things on our behalf because that's what he does. And listen, think about this. If you were writing to someone you love and you knew that it could be the last time you would write to them or even see them, would not your efforts to communicate to them be a bit disjointed? And like, oh, yeah, I better say this. Oh, yeah, I better say that. And that's what I think is going on with Paul here. And I'll tell you why. In Psalm 43, 5, David says this, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, David is encouraging himself. For I shall yet praise him, the help of my what? My countenance, my outlook, my appearance even. He says, the help of my countenance and my God. Now, why I wanted to point this out is because David's emotional response to his personal circumstances made it onto the pages of Scripture. And I think that's what's happening with Paul here. He's thinking, oh, these beloved Philippians, I got to tell them this. I got to tell them that. I got to tell them that. Finally, and then he goes back again. It says in chapter 4, verse 8, finally again. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that there's some uh, type of external insertion into the text. I think this is Paul writing passionately what may be his last letter to this beloved church. Now, I think all of us have wondered lately, what's going to happen to us? Where's all this going? I know a lot of you have had COVID. And you know what? When I had COVID, I got it as my New Year's gift last year. That's when I got my positive test was on New Year's Day. I remember thinking what everybody else thinks. Where's this going? My fever going up. I get oh, I coughed. I sneezed. Am I dying? Of course, we're all thinking like that because we know what's going on and where this can potentially lead. How bad is this going to get? And, you know, when we pair that with what we talked about last week, that the enemy knows he has a short time and he's pulling out all the stops. So he's trying to drive us into fear, doubt and worry. He's trying to get into our heads. He's trying to get in to our emotions. You know what? He was messing with me this weekend. And, you know, I, you guys have been following my limping and gimping and sitting and standing and all the other things I've been going through with my hip uh, over these past few months. And you know what? I've been doing great. Uh, this uh, cortisone shot has helped me greatly. And about 4 o'clock on Friday afternoon, the evening before the conference, I pinched a nerve in my hip. I could hardly walk. Couldn't barely sit down. And you know what? To be honest with you, yesterday was absolutely brutal. And walking up the steps and onto the stage, I was not going to limp in front of people. So all I did was grip my teeth. And you know what? On the way home, all the pain went away. <laughs> and I, can't, I, can't, I was just so blown away by this. I came into our bedroom, and, and I, I think Terry probably initially thought that I, I probably lost my mind. But I walked into the bedroom, and I'm going like this. Look at me! Look at me! And she says, stop that! You're going to hurt yourself. So I did. I didn't hurt myself, but I did stop it. But, you know, isn't that just like the devil? Constantly harassing, constantly trying to mess up what God wants to do. And I was talking with Amir this morning. He had exactly the opposite experience. I asked him this morning, his back is messed up. Matter of fact, he had a doctor in Santa Barbara tell him, or Santa Monica tell him, I've never seen anybody's back so messed up. He was in a major car accident about 21 years ago. And uh, I said, how's your back this morning? He said, I felt nothing all day at the conference. It was great. And I got back to the hotel, and it's killing me again. So uh, me, I was uh, having my experience at the conference. He got it afterwards. Whatever the devil can do to keep us from rejoicing, he's going to try. But we're not going to let him win. Because greater is he who is in us than he who's after us. Amen? Now, last week we noted that since the enemy's pulling out all the stops, and what follows Paul's first finally is going to remind us about how we need to think and what we need to do uh, as living in such a time as this, 
in perilous, loveless, truthless, lawless, and violent times. And that is we need to practice what many businesses will tell you is their main objective. And our title is safety first. Safety first is our title. Now, let me explain that. Paul is going to mention in his letter, keeping them safe is his primary goal. And what is going to follow, what we'll talk about today, is more along the lines of what he's going to write in chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, where he says, be anxious for what? Nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, in other words, you have it when most people wouldn't, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And we are, as we've been mentioning, in a season of great deception and fear. And when these things start to rule, sound decisions can be impacted and poor choices can be made. And therefore, our spiritual and therefore mental and emotional state needs to be guarded. And we need to put safety first. We need to have our minds guarded in Christ Jesus in these very strange times. How do we do that? Through the counsel the Holy Spirit will offer today through Paul in our text. So, would you stand and read with me from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Lord, we are grateful for our time and text this morning. And thank you, Lord, that we don't have to sit around and think about the great things and wonderful things that happened yesterday, because when we open your book, great things are in front of us every day. So Lord, teach us, equip the saints for the work of ministry this morning. Guide us by your spirit and give us ears to hear it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our first of our three, what we're going to call safety alerts this morning, is going to come from verse 1, where Paul mentions the importance of the content of this letter. Now, again, commentators were divided on what actually he's talking about, where he, he mentions writing the same things to you. Some say it means the same things I wrote to the Galatian church or other letters, or some would say uh, the same things I wrote to you in another letter that we don't know about. But what Paul is saying is that the content of his letter is not tedious. And the word tedious means sluggish or backwards. But he says, what I'm writing to you for is your safety. Therefore, Paul puts safety first in this uh, portion of the letter. And that's where we derived our title. Now, in Psalm 28, 7, King David says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am what? Helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song, I will praise him. Then the psalmist says in 84.11, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk out uprightly. And then I believe King David wrote Psalm 119, simply because it's a repeated acrostic, which was one of David's favorite literary tools. 
He says in 119, 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your what? In your word. And listen, one of the great tragedy, tragedies of this season, when the enemy knows he has a short time and the world is spiraling towards the great tribulation, is that there are so many people today who attend churches that don't leave them safe. They leave them unguarded from the things of this world because they see the Bible and a living according to it as sluggish or backwards. Paul says this stuff is stuff you need. It will keep you safe. It's not antiquated or outdated. It is essential to your safety. Now this happens every year, but it seems to be happening in an exponential manner this year. And that is there are messages floating around out there that 2022 is going to be the year of this or that. I've seen it's going to be the year of release. It's going to be the year of restoration. It's going to be the year of replenishing. It's going to be the year of abundance. Well, I hope it's the year of the rapture. Amen. Amen. And there are people who are saying, you know what? The Lord told me to tell you these things. And they're leaving people with unguarded hearts and minds because it is the word of God that is our sun and our shield and not some extra biblical revelation that is actually contradictory with Scripture. And listen, the problem is when you listen to this babble and when you believe in this babble and your blessing doesn't come and your release doesn't come and your replenishing doesn't come, then the other thing that won't come is your rejoicing. But when you trust in the word of the Lord and you see it coming to pass, right before your eyes, when He is with you in times of tribulation, when He is with you in times of famine, when He is with you in times of difficulty, you know that you have an object that is worthy of trust and praise and therefore rejoicing, and that is found in the Word of the Lord. And David said in Psalm 34, 1-4, I will bless the Lord when I'm in the mood. I will bless the Lord when things are going good for me. No, he said, I will bless the Lord when? At all times. He said, his praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, mag listen to this invitation. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all of my what? My fears, you know, David wrote this about when he was in Gath, captured by the Philistines, uh, Gath being Goliath's hometown, and he was carrying Goliath's sword, the very one he lopped Goliath's head off with. Do you think maybe that was a fearful moment? You know what? David had to act like he was nuts in order to get out of it. it says he let his spittle run down his beard and he clawed at the gate like some kind of madman. And the king said, we got enough nuts here in Gath. We don't need another one. Get this guy out of my presence. And David, after that, said, I'm going to bless the Lord even then. I'm going to bless him when things aren't going so hot. When I'm in trouble and I got myself there, I'm still going to bless the Lord. And listen, when I see people standing in front of huge crowds spouting off things that aren't true and will not come to pass, and they do so as though they are certainties, I wonder when these people who are proven to be false prophets time after time after time, do people keep going to listen to them? The answer? They haven't put safety first. They haven't been students of the Word of God first. And listen, here's the thing we need to remember at such a time as this, in the midst of all the confusing messages and heresy and the other things we see going on today. And listen, our first safety alert is this. Listen, if your foundation is not immovable, neither are you. If your foundation is not immovable, neither are you. That's why we stand on the rock of Christ. Amen? Because he shall not be moved, nor shall we. And the problem with many of the things being spewed out this time of year is that they sound good. They, who doesn't want a time of replenishing? Who doesn't want 2022 to be the year of restoration? I'm sure anybody that hears that has a myriad of things running through their minds. Maybe a broken relationship. Uh, maybe something that uh, they lost that they wish they would gain back or God would give them access to once again. All of these things, they all sound 
wonderful, but you know, if we're going to look at what the Bible has to say, somebody needs to stand up and say, this is the year of perilous times. Because that's what the Bible says. That's exactly what it's going to be. And therefore, we need to be prepared for them. And we need to have safety first on our minds. And listen, there are people today who are saying things that are wanted, saying things that are longed for to be true. And the problem is they came from the mind of a person and not the mind of God. Because the mind of God is contained in the word of God. Now listen to what Jeremiah the prophet, who was super popular in his day, Listen to what he said. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Who's speaking? The Lord of hosts. But, okay, Mike, you were at first service, so you already knew the answer. Where was everybody else on this? Thus says the Lord of hosts. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of their own heart or people doing their own thing, no evil shall come upon you. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and who has perceived and heard his what? Word. Who has marked his word and heard it? And in 8 and 9 of Jeremiah 29, he says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst do what? Deceive you. Nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. Listen to this. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Now, I asked a question yesterday. How many knew what... Uh, the NAR movement is, and the New Apostolic Reformation. And little uh, taken back by the, the response, how many of you know what NAR is? I know there's, raise your hand. So again, same here as yesterday. Most people have never heard of this, but this is one of the most dangerous movements in the church today. It's called the New Apostolic Reformation. And the New Apostolic Reformation basically is that there are a new group of apostles just like those in the Bible. And because the Bible is a closed canon, because the scripture has been completed, what they teach and believe and claim and demand is that their spoken word be treated as equal to the written word of God. Now, where do we find a new group of apostles coming in the last days in the Bible? Nowhere. Ain't going to happen. Because there's no such thing. And this is what Jeremiah is talking about. You know what? There are people in our midst when judgment is coming who are saying, no, it's not. There are people in our midst who are saying, you know what? The church is going to have dominion over the world so Jesus can come back. No, they're not. The church isn't going to have dominion over the world. Jesus is going to take dominion of the world by force in Revelation chapter 19. And we're going to come back with him. Things aren't going to get better and better. Things are going to get worse and worse. And when they get so bad, the only solution is God's wrath. He's going to snatch us out of here in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. And he's going to deal with this rebellious planet. And listen, the Bible says the last days are tough. The Bible says the last days are perilous. And listen, if we're not standing on the immovable foundation of the word of God and listen to people whom God has not sent, the only result can be being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And that's what's happening in much of the church today. And Paul said, you know what? What I'm writing to you isn't sluggish. It's not backwards. It's what you need. It's for your safety that I am writing you these things so you can remain rejoicing in the Lord. Now, one more thing about the multitude of charlatans we have around us today who claim to be prophets and apostles. Their escape hatch when they uh, proclaim something and it doesn't happen for you is that, well, these things happen by faith and it's apparent you don't have any. So if what they spoke over you doesn't come to pass, whose fault is it? It's your fault. Because you don't have faith. You know, the problem with that is this. That's not what faith is. Faith is not the ability to get what you want. Faith is not the ability to make things happen. 
Faith is believing the Word of God to the point and degree that you do what it says. That's what faith is. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the fact that we are living out what God said to do so other people can see it. Faith is how we prove that perfect will of God to a lost and dying world. Faith is not some kind of genie you rub and it gives you what you want. Listen, sometimes God allows things we don't want. And you know what? It, it was a bit of a whammy on Friday afternoon, some 15 hours before the conference starts, to pinch a nerve in my hip. You know, I got to admit, I wasn't rejoicing. I wasn't happy about it. And I thought, how in the world can this happen right now? I've been doing so good. And actually, I've been running errands all afternoon. Doing all kinds. Of, I was fine. And then all of a sudden, I come limping around the corner. And you know what? It, I wasn't happy clappy. I didn't like it. But you know what? I could not speak it out of existence or decree and declare my nerve unpinched. I didn't have that power to do that. What I did do is I said, you know what? God ordained that we have this conference and I'm going if I have to crawl up to the platform. And I'm just going to obey His Word. Now listen, faith isn't some type of magic that's exclusive to the Christian realm. Faith is acting like God's Word is true and acting upon it. Amen? Now, look at 2 to 7. We'll pick up uh, Paul's thoughts there. He talked... Well, Guess I better read the right chapter. Chapter one was really good, but we already covered that. He says, Beware of what? Dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I myself might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, and then Paul lists a series of his fleshly credentials, so to speak. Now, it was commonly said, thought, and taught among the Jews that Gentiles were dogs. And they used that because dogs were unclean animals, according to the law. So Gentiles were unclean people. Paul turns the table on these Judaizers who had come into Philippi, who had already been to other cities teaching their uh, untruths, and Paul turns the table on them by saying two things. He says, well, uh, these are actually the dogs. The Judaizers are the dogs, not you Gentile believers. And then on top of that, he calls them the mutilation. And basically, he, he uses the uh, latter portion of the compound word translated as circumcision, and he calls them the concision, which means to cut them off or to mutilate them. Now, he talks about this in Galatians, where the Judaizers had visited also. And he said, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even what? Cut themselves off. That's the concision. That's what Paul is talking about here. And if you need more details on uh, what Paul's talking about here, but please see Pastor Dave after the service. He'll be glad to uh, explain it to you. Now, Paul is addressing those who were demanding that Gentile Christians be circumcised. And they went as far to say, you know what? If you're not circumcised, you're not saved. Paul says what the truth was about circumcision is the first place, in the first place, is that circumcision was different than how they saw it. The Judaizers saw it. He said, you know, it's actually those who worship God in spirit that are truly the circumcised. He said the same thing to the church in Rome in 2.28-29 in the letter to them. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one where? Inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. You know, uh, uh, in looking at Paul and looking how aggressive he addresses this particular issue, I always find it interesting uh, that you will never find anybody who is more zealous about not smoking than a former smoker. <laughs> and the same is true with me. Uh, I'm not one. I am never going to take a neutral position on alcohol because I've seen what it can do. 
and I've seen who it can capture and that it has nothing to do with environment or upbringing because I was raised in a Christian home, never exposed to alcohol, didn't even know anyone who drank. There were no drunks in our family except one distant uncle in Alabama. His name was Uncle Bud. They called him Uncle Suds, and I only met him once. He didn't have enough time with me, and the one time I saw him on the other side of a fishing boat to influence me to become a drunk, it was in me. I didn't know it was in me. My environment didn't drive me in that direction. But listen, this morning, I feel like Paul. Listen, alcohol has never made anybody's life better, but it's destroyed millions. Well, you know, I have that liberty. Well, whoopee-doo for you. You know what? You don't know what's in you. I didn't know what was in me. I didn't know I was going to drink one beer when I was 16 and then be drunk for the next 10. I didn't know that. I didn't know that was in me, and you don't either. So listen, why play with a snake? I'm not going to get bit. I'm not going to be one of those ones. Listen, I don't take, I'm like Paul. I don't take that kind of attitude towards something that has destroyed millions of lives. Listen, there is no potential positive value in drinking, only a high likelihood of negative consequences. So stay away from it. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> and here Paul, the former Pharisee and persecutor of the church, says, you know what, you Judaizers, you want to brag about who you are? He said, well, try this on for size. I didn't become a Jew. I was born a Jew. I didn't get circumcised when I was 13 like the Ishmaelites. I didn't get circumcised as an adult like the proselytes. I was born into a family of two Hebrew parents and circumcised according to the law on the eighth day, he said, you know what else? I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And hey, listen up, Judaizers. Benjamin was the favored tribe after Joseph disappeared. And Benjamin was the tribe that sided with Judah when the nation was divided. And the tribe from whom came Israel's first king, after whom I am named. And not only was I a Hebrew, but I was the Hebrews' Hebrew. I was a Pharisee. And I was zealous for the Lord at that, as proven by my persecution of the church. And he said, as far as it pertains to righteousness that comes from the law, I was blameless. I kept the law. And then he says, you know what? These things that I used to use as the definer of who I was, I now see that losing them and gaining Christ is better than the emptiness of those things. And he opens this section with a double warning. Beware of the uncleanness of the Judaizers, calling them dogs. And then he says they're actually evil workers. And here's our next safety alert. Listen, you ready? If the Bible prohibits, rejects, or refutes it, so should we. If the Bible prohibits, rejects, or refutes it, so should we. And think about what's in front of us here. Circumcision never saved anybody in the Old Testament, so why would it save people in the New? It was never a qualifier. It was always an identifier. And this is why Paul said these Judaizers are evil workers because they're adding to the work of Christ on the cross, which is always evil. And this is why he would say to the Galatians who were dealing with this same issue in 6-9 of chapter 1, where he said, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Remember, the word pervert means to become its opposite. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received or heard from the apostles, let him be what? A curse. Was that only true in Galatia? Is it true today? So therefore, when the Bible prohibits or refutes something, we ought to do the same. And Paul was writing to the Galatians about the same subject and possibly even the same group who were traveling from town to town demanding that Gentile Christians first become Jews in order to be saved through circumcision. And Paul calls this another gospel that isn't really another gospel, but it's actually anathema. It's a curse. And this reminds us that 
one of the things that makes the last days perilous for the church is that there are beliefs and teaching that are teachings that are presented as biblical that aren't biblical at all. And biblical words are used. Now listen, I mentioned this last week, and I know I mention it frequently, but there's a reason for it. We need to be careful about this free grace, hyper grace movement that is sweeping the world today and is extremely popular because it is a dangerous movement and it's an effort to infiltrate the church like the Judaizers. But you know what makes it so dangerous? Sounds really good. It appeals to the flesh. And in the free grace movement, the grace of God is so magnanimous it removes any expectation of change in your life. He saved you by grace. He just picked you and saved you, and he'll see you in heaven when you get there. I heard one of the leading promoters of the free grace movement say this. Listen, God is never disappointed in you. God is never disappointed in you. As soon as I heard that, I watched him, I heard him say it. So this isn't, you know, this person told me that that person said this and that. I heard him say it, I watched it myself. And my thought was this, instantly. If the Lord chastens those whom he loves, then according to this system of belief, God disciplines people for no reason whatsoever. He's never disappointed in you. If he's cruel with everything you do, why in the world would he chasten you? Why would he scourge every son that he receives? Uh, was not the example given? You know, earthly fathers discipline their children. What do they discipline them for? Something to do? You know, God doesn't just, you know, randomly pick out people. There's no big hat in heaven where he draws a name and says, okay, I'm going to chasten Mike Predney today. That's not how it works. You know, there has to be a standard or a measure of violation that causes God to coerce us back into his will through his discipline. And it is an act of love. And listen, uh, what a ridiculous statement. God is never disappointed in you because what that means is he's always happy with you. And listen, we are definitely positionally in Christ and we still blow it being in Christ. Amen. And the Lord chastens us during those times and he scourges Every son whom he received. And then Hebrews goes on to say, because if you are without God's discipline, that means you're not his child. You see how dangerous this teaching is? And one of the interesting things about the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, is where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty clear, right? You know what the interpretation of that is? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who, what's the next word? Does the will, there's faith in action. Doing the will of my Father in heaven. Now he says, many will say to me in that day, in that day pointing forward to judgment day. Lord, Lord, now listen to these activities. Have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who what? Practice lawlessness. Now, one of the things I think that is so interesting and why I wanted to draw your attention to this is because these things that he mentions here are the very things going on in these movements today that claim to be the new apostles and prophets. We're prophesying in your name. We're casting out demons in your name and doing many wonders in your name. And listen, you know, one of these places in particular that's extremely popular up in Northern California has a school of miracles. Come join the school and for a certain amount of money, we can teach you how to do miracles too. Well, I don't know. My Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, that God distributes the gifts individually as he wills. And you don't need a class to take them. He gives them to you. And if God wants to give you the gift of healing, then he's going to give you the gift of healing. For only $29.90. No, there's no charge. And listen, you know, he, he says that these people are going to stand before him and they're going to claim, you know what, we, we had all of these things, uh, these, these uh, prophecies and these casting out of demons and doing wonders in your name. And the Lord's going to say, you know what? I, I, I had no relationship with you. I don't even know who you are. 
And then he gives the identifier of you who practice lawlessness. Now listen, the Greek word translated lawlessness is anomia. And it means to violate the law. And since the law of Moses and the 613 statutes recorded there had no provision within it to save the human soul, the law in view, nor was that its purpose. The law in view has to be the commandments of God. And listen, the free and the hyper-grace movement believe and teach the doctrine of antinomianism. And antinomianism is just a big, long word that means no law. Jesus said, I don't know people who say there's no law. I don't know people who say there's no standard by which the Christian ought to measure themselves against and live according to in order to be effective for me and bring glory to me. And listen, the definition of antinomianism is the belief that grace has freed the Christian from obeying any moral law. Grace has freed the Christian from obeying any moral law. So since you were saved by grace, you're free to be an adulterer. Since you were saved by grace, you're free to be a drunkard. Since you're saved by grace, you're free to be a liar. You're free to be a thief. You're free to be... A, you see where this is going? Do you think this teaching is biblical? Is it for our safety? that we warn about it? And listen, Jesus says he doesn't know the antinomianism, the lawless ones, and the Bible clearly rejects and refutes such teaching, and so should we. And just like Paul called the Judaizers unclean and evil workers, there's nothing more evil in this world than telling people they can negate and violate the word of God as Christians. There's nothing more diminishing to the Christian faith. Now, Listen close. I get accused of this all the time, and I, you know, I love it. <laughs> I'm not teaching works righteousness. I'm just teaching righteousness. Because the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is exclusive to the righteous. That's what Paul said to the church in Corinth, the very carnal city. And the church was struggling with carnality there. And he says, hey, hang on, guys. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He said, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Does that need any interpretation? No. But, man, am I glad he kept writing. And such were some of you. When you write something like that, does that not imply you're not that anymore? Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And listen, there are people who say, well, you know what? What Paul is talking about with this washing and sanctifying and justifying is our positional place in Christ Jesus. Well, if that's what he's talking about, then why does he list a group of physical activities as disqualifiers? He's not talking about things that uh, we can continue in, like the uh, free gracers say, just because we're saved by grace. Paul says you used to be those things, and you're not anymore as evidence that God has done a work in you. And listen, repentance requires a standard by which things are to be turned from and measured, and that has to be the Word of God. And listen, if someone teaches something that the Word prohibits, refutes, or rejects, then we should reject it too. We should be against it too. And why are you so quiet? <laughs> now, listen to uh, 8 through 11 one more time. As Paul goes on, he says, Yes, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, I don't know, I, I just couldn't help but think in reading this again, you know, some prophet coming to Paul and saying, Paul, 
This is the year of release. And then Paul stands before Caesar is found guilty and he loses his head. I don't think Paul would have bought that myself. I think Paul, who is giving uh, the safety alerts, would have immediately had his antenna go up to somebody who would come and uh, say such a thing. And listen, we need to be careful of that too. Amen. Listen, it's not that God doesn't speak to us because he does. Right. It's not that, you know, everything uh, within the word of God is all we're ever going to hear from God. But everything we hear from God needs to be filtered by the word of God because he's never going to say anything to us that conflicts with the word of God or contradicts the word of God. I'm glad he talks to us. I'm glad he talks to me. I'm glad for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm glad that he directs our steps. I'm glad that his mercies are new every morning. I'm glad that he didn't just save us and then leave us and hope we can wander our way into heaven someday. But he is with us every step of the way, upholding us and guiding us and guarding us and keeping us safe. I'm glad for those things, aren't you? And Paul continues in this refutation of the message of the Judaizers where he likens all that he used to do and believe as rubbish in comparison to the excellence of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he's taking another dig at them because the Greek word translated as rubbish means what to throw to the dogs. We call them dogs again. He's calling them unclean again. Now, if you want to go next level with it, it's also the word for dung. And if you don't know what dung is, you know who to see after the service. <laughs> and he'll explain it to you. Now, he mentions having his own righteousness through keeping the, keeping the law. And listen, your own righteousness is self-righteousness, and self-righteousness won't get you into the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's the exact opposite of being righteous in Christ, which is from God by faith, is what Paul says. Now, it was interesting. I was, I was looking at it because faith is so abused today and turned into this magical genie rub the lamp formula kind of thing. You know the, that the word faith is only found in the Old Testament two times. Two times. And it's found in Deuteronomy 32, 20 in the negative where the Lord said and Moses wrote, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be for they are a what? Perverts generation, children in whom is no faith. And then Habakkuk would write later in 2, 4, behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. But here's the most frequently quoted portion of the Old Testament in the New but the just shall live by his what? faith. Moses wrote of the future rebellion of Israel and declared their rebellion as a revelation of the absence of faith. Habakkuk wrote during the rebellion of Israel where the absence of faith manifested itself in the form of pride. The kingdom had split in two. The northern kingdom had been taken captive by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah was about to go into a seven-year Babylonian captivity when Habakkuk wrote. And the point is this, the absence of faith was revealed by disobedience of Israel to the commandments of God and his ordinances and laws. And Paul was not saying that the law of God is rubbish. He's saying what the Judaizers were making it into was. Obedience to the law was a mark of identification, not a means by which you access salvation. And he closes by saying the righteousness of God is by faith. And faith allows him and us to access the power of the resurrection the fellowship of his sufferings, the conformity into Jesus' death, that he may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, he uses the phrase, if by any means. And for us, uh, in English, it can be a bit misleading. And Paul is not saying that there are other means by which he can attain to salvation, nor is he saying that there are means by which we can obtain salvation. What he's saying is that if he's going to get to heaven, it's going to be through faith alone in Christ alone. And that's how he's going to arrive in heaven, not his credentials as a Jew. That's one thing I always appreciate about Amir and in the many hours of conversations that we've had and how we've talked about some of this Hebrew roots movement. And he gets so aggravated about people who elevate the Jews to some type of uh, superior status and how Christians want to become Jews. You know, his, his point is, you know what? I'm a Jew, and you're never going to be one. 
you're a Gentile. And as a Jew, I had to become a Christian to access Jesus Christ and go to heaven. But why do you want to be a Jew so bad? Why don't you want to be like Jesus so bad? And listen, here's what we need to, uh, to glean as a safety alert from Paul using his own life to make the point, telling a saying that what he used to be is rubbish in comparison to who he is in Christ. Here's something for us to remember in these very, very ugly, dark last days. Listen this morning. No one is good enough to be saved, and no one is so bad they can't be. No one is good enough to be saved, and no one is so bad that they can't be. And listen, I was thinking that how many times I've heard the question, uh, can Satan be saved? Should we pray for Satan? And whenever I've done a call-in program, that some sweet little child calls up and asks that question. And listen, they're of another realm of beings. They are not like humans. There's no capacity for them to change their eternal destiny. Satan's going to be in hell forever and ever and ever, as are the third of the angels that followed after him. That is their sealed eternal destiny. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates that they can repent or change. That's exclusive uh, to humanity. But amongst humanity, nobody is good enough to be saved. There's none who does good, no, not one. But there's nobody so bad that God can't save them. Now listen this morning. I found these statistics to be startling, and I hope they shake you up too. There are 1.34 billion with a B, billion people in the world who have been taught and believe that attending Mass, confessing to a priest, repeating phrases, and taking communion can save them. 1.34 billion people. There are 1.8 billion people who are taught and believe that man is born sinless. And the only way to retain this state of sinlessness is by following Allah's commands and to strive to live a righteous life. It offers deliverance from the fires of hell by having at the end of your days your good deeds outweigh your bad. And it believes and states clearly that salvation is obtained, attained only through submission to the most merciful Allah, who is without partners, sons, or daughters. So there's no room for Jesus, even though he's in the Quran 25 times. And listen this morning. There are one billion Hindus today who believe that salvation can be achieved one of three ways, the way of works, the way of knowledge, or the way of devotion. Add to that 535 million Buddhists who believe that salvation can be attained only by using inner human resources, such as meditation, the accumulation of wisdom, asceticism, rituals or good deeds through individual discipline and practice. Sometimes these must accumulate over the course of many lives or lifetimes. Add that up. Four billion, 675 million of the 8 billion people on the planet believe in things they can't save them. Messages that will send them to hell. And listen, Paul would look at this, and as he said to the Judaizers, and their message that the saved are those who are good enough to deserve it, and the unsaved are those who do not, Paul says, poppycock. Poppycock is British slang for rubbish. He says rubbish. That's rubbish. He said, if anybody could have earned salvation, it was me. And because I can't, you can't. And to Titus, he would write in 3, 3 to 7, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs 
according to the hope of eternal life. I've always found some of these teachings we've been talking about, that there's no law or no moral code for us to consider and measure our life by uh, as Christians. How can we have the spirit of a true and living God in us yet live nothing like Jesus? How can that be? I mean, how can we land on, on that type of thinking? Well, it's because Satan loves to tickle our flesh with things that tempt us and that we desire. And why our point was presented as a safety alert is because of what we just read. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. And listen, you cannot pick a belief system, adhere to it, and then expect eternal salvation just because you believe it. Salvation and thus access to heaven is exclusively through the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus Christ. And there's no other way to come to the Father. And this is why Paul said, listen, I'm writing you to keep you safe. Because they're coming in to lie to you. They're coming in to deceive you. They're actually after robbing you of your soul. And I want to protect and guard your heart and mind from the infiltration of unbiblical teachings and teachers. And listen, this is why I bring these things up so much to you. You need to know about the New Apostolic Reformation and that it is false teaching. You need to know about that. You need to know about the dangers of the hyper-grace movement and why you stay away from it. We don't want to be a part of any of those things, amen? We want to teach and adhere to and stay close to the Word of God because it's safe. It will keep us protected from all the things happening in our world. And listen, here, here's the other thing, and, and finally, Paul said finally twice, so I'm going to say it. In our world, sincerity has replaced actuality. If something is believed sincerely, it is thus made valid. Did the sincere belief of the Judaizers that directly contradicted Scripture make their belief true? No. Paul said they're evil workers. They're dogs. He's trying to tell them very aggressively, don't listen to them. Then the same is to be said of modern-day additions and subtractions from the Word of God. And listen, we're going to close with a quick test. If the Bible says don't do it, hey, man, you guys were right on it. I don't know if it was super early at first service, but um, I'll just leave that alone. Now listen, if the Bible says don't believe it, if the Bible says do it, if the Bible says believe it, believe it. It's just that simple. And listen, in these last days and perilous times, we need to remember that no one is good enough to be saved and no one is so bad that they can't be. That's why we go to the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Mean people. God saves mean people. Aren't you glad about that? God saves abrasive people. God save, saves people who are just as far as anyone could possibly be away from him. He apprehends them even sometimes when they are on the road to Damascus, Syria to arrest Christians and throw them in prison and maybe even have them killed. He says, hang on, see the light. And think about that encounter that Paul had. What happened? And especially for those who say, you know, that repentance isn't a necessary portion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all grace. Grace, 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 grace. No, no repentance. There's no need for any of that. Think about Paul. He was on the Damascus Road on the way to arrest and persecute Christians. The Lord stopped him dead in his tracks, blinded him for three days. And as soon as Paul asked the question, Who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then what did Paul say after that? What would you have me to do? He was going with letters in hand from the council to persecute the church. He met Jesus and then he asked his new boss, what would you have me to do? It was instantaneous. That's what God does. That's how God moves. That's how God's, God operates. Could Paul continue persecuting the church after he was saved by grace? Could he have gotten up and continued to Damascus and arrested Christians? No. 
then why in the world would anyone think, say, or teach that we can continue in what we used to be, yet claim to have a changed eternal destiny? It just makes no sense. Amen? And Paul himself is such wonderful proof that the Lord can save anyone. And that means there's room for me and for you. Somebody say, Amen. Amen.